Thanks for your patience. All right. We're in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18 today. Open up our time by way of introduction. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. This is a warning we hear all the time, right? We speak this warning. We speak it with different tones. Sometimes we say, be careful what what you wish for in a very ominous way. Other times it's just kind of playing. You're sort of in jest. Be careful what you wish for. But pretty much however we say this warning, it goes unheeded. It doesn't work. Because when we want something so badly or when we've waited for something for so long, we start to change. We start to become irrational. We lose all sense of perspective. We plug our ears to reasons why it might be good for us not to get the item or the circumstance we so desperately want. When we've want something so badly or when we have waited for something for so long, we can become entitled. No longer do we ask for that thing. We start to demand for that thing. When we've wanted something so badly and waited for something for so long, we can even become hopeless. Self-pity, cynical, paralyzed. And good news is the Bible's filled with people who are just like us. People who want things that they shouldn't want. People who want things so badly that they blind themselves to the consequences of those things. Take Adam and Eve in the garden, for instance. They want one thing so badly that they blind themselves to the paradise that God has given them. Then there's Israel in the wilderness. They want a variety of food so badly that they blind themselves to the provision that God had given them. Not just the manna from heaven, but every word that had proceeded from the mouth of God, the word that guided them, the word that saved them. There's Israel in the days of Samuel, the judge. They wanted a king like the other nations so badly that they blinded themselves to the consequences that that king would bring. But it's true. If we can cut ourselves a little bit of slack, all of us do feel some kind of emptiness. Each one of us experiences brokenness. Every one of us faces hunger in the barren spiritual wilderness that we call earth. But the problem is, is that we seek to fill that emptiness, mend that brokenness, and satisfy that hunger with counterfeits cotton candy instead of substance. What we wish for so badly, the bad news is it won't turn out to be what we really, truly need. And so today we see that by stepping off his heavenly throne and taking on human flesh, Jesus fulfills the deepest desires that we should have. Out of Jesus' fullness, he fills our emptiness By becoming breakable, Jesus mends our brokenness. If you haven't turned there yet, turn with me to John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. I invite you to keep your Bibles open the whole time we're together this morning so you can follow along well. And the Word of God reads like this. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. This is the last paragraph of what many call the prologue to John's gospel. So in this prologue, John introduces us to big themes that will run throughout his book. But most importantly, in this opening part of the book of John, he introduces us to his main subject, Jesus Christ. We've called this our North Star for the book of John and really for the entire Bible. This is a book that's about Jesus. And so today we see that by taking on flesh, Jesus graciously and gloriously fulfills what we've been waiting for. He graciously and gloriously fulfills what we've been waiting for. So first, we've waited for God to dwell among us. We've waited for God to dwell among us. This comes from verses 15 and uh, from verses 14 and 15. So verse 14, the way it opens, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. To fit this in context of what John said so far, this is the first time John's used this title, the word, since verse 1. Now in verses 9 and 10, John says that the light was in the world. But here in verse 14, this is the first time he clearly says that the word became human. And John's going to carry this theme through the rest of his book, and especially in his letter, 1 John, that Jesus truly became human. All the emotions, all the weaknesses, all the limitations, yet without sin. And before 2008, uh, the company Apple, have we heard of the company Apple before? Yes. All right. The company Apple was an established American brand. It was very well established. Uh, its founder and owner, Steve Jobs, sold computers to people around the world. He changed the personal computing game. He even changed how people listened to music with the iPod. But although Apple had established itself as a powerhouse prior to 2008, 2008 brought an entirely new chapter. I mean, you could even say that Apple was waiting for this moment. You could say that there was pre-2008 Apple and post-2008 Apple. Well, you're asking, okay, what in the world happened in 2008? Well, in 2008, Steve Jobs announced the release of the first iPhone first iPhone. And here, this moment, the word taking on flesh, it's like the iPhone of the Bible. The Bible's been waiting for this moment. You could almost say there is a uh, pre-word taking on flesh and a post-word taking on flesh. This story has been building to this moment, and now we are here. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us. And so we say, yes, we look at the past, what's come before this moment. Yes, God has spoken his word in times past. But where was his word? Well, you're free to use your movie knowledge for this one. You think of Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. God's word was on tablets of stone. 
now God's word is more than just spoken. God's word is more than just written down. God's word becomes flesh. And so we say we look at what's uh, come before this moment. Yes, God has been present with his people in times past. The very beginning, he dwelt in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was present in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant. He did that first in the tabernacle when Israel was in the wilderness. And then he did it in the temple in Jerusalem when Israel was settled in the promised land. But now, now, here in this moment, God dwells in the flesh. Verse 14 literally says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's what that word dwelt means. This is a new movement in the story. God the Son, the Word of God, truly became human. And while you might sit there and say, yeah, I get it, the Bible's built up to this moment, but why is it such a big deal? Why did this need to happen? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That's a great question. Other parts of the Bible will help us answer this question. Why did Jesus need to truly become human? We can give at least two answers. The first comes from places like Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians chapter 15. These chapters explain how Adam's sin, the very first human, how Adam's sin has affected each one of us. One of my favorite analogies to picture this is like you picture a line of people climbing a mountain and Adam is at the top of that line. And it's like Adam falls, and if the top of the line, and they're all connected, if Adam falls, everybody else is going down with him. But then picture Jesus as someone else who who is in this line and holds on where Adam didn't. So So that everybody who's united to Jesus can now also hold on as well. So the, the point is, if Jesus did not become human, then he couldn't represent us as a new Adam. But there's another reason that Jesus had to become human, and that comes from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. Those verses say, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, which is saying, since we're human, he had to become human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Put it in another way. Jesus became human so that he could die. Jesus became human so that he could die. Jesus became killable. What other so-called God has done this? Jesus truly became human. The Bible is built up to, its, to this moment. And Jesus did this so that he can represent us, and he did this so that he could die in our place. But John moves on in verse 14, and John's going to clarify something. He says, yes, Jesus really became human, but he was still God when he took on flesh. So John says, the word took, became flesh. But who is the word? Well, we got to go back to verse 1. The word is God. So here, this is God in the flesh. So when Jesus became human, we have to think of it like addition and not subtraction. 
addition and not subtraction. Jesus added a human nature. He did not subtract his divine nature. We read a really key passage that describes this earlier. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 7, says that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's the addition part. Being born in the likeness of men. So when it says he emptied himself, it means that Jesus emptied himself of the privileges that came with being equal with God. He did not empty himself of the reality of being equal with God, but the privileges of being equal with God. So we put this together. Jesus is one person with two natures, human and divine. But how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus really is God in the flesh? Look at what John says. How do we know? Well, John says, we saw him. We saw his glory. And when they saw him, they saw one who has a peculiar glory. They saw one who has the same glory as God the Father. The Father has given the same glory he has to his one and only Son. It is glory, John says, that is full of grace and truth. Now, when John says this, he's hinting at another time when the Lord made himself known. We read about this uh, earlier in the service also. It happened with Moses at the top of Mount Sinai. Moses asked God to show him his glory. And what did God say? God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And he came to Mount Sinai and declared his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Another way to put it, put it, the Lord, the Lord, the God of grace and truth. The same words John uses here in John 1. This is what John's saying. He's saying the same glory that showed up at Sinai, God's glory full of grace and truth is now in human form. This is truly God in the flesh. Now we talked about this a couple weeks ago. But just to remind you again, everything in the Jewish worldview stood against this. I mean, Jewish people couldn't even speak the name of Yahweh, but to say that he became a man, that was unthinkable. And yet here he is, John, a Jewish man, couldn't deny the glory that he saw. He saw it in Jesus' miracles, but principally he saw it in Jesus' death and resurrection. But just in case you were wondering... You say, well, yeah, John got to see it, but none of us have gotten to see it. Well, we just think of the purpose of this book in general. We are the exact kind of people that John's writing this book for. John is writing this book so that everybody who reads it may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and have life in his name. That comes at the very end of the Gospel of John. And we think about Thomas, which is also near the end of this book. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who touched Jesus' wounds after Jesus rose from the dead. And then he said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus replies to Thomas. Thomas, he says, blessed are those who believe in me, but haven't seen me. So for John and for Jesus, they tell us that we can see Jesus' glory just by hearing Jesus' story. 
we can see Jesus' glory just by hearing Jesus' story. But again, the Apostle John throws in there that he's not the only one who testifies of this. Verse 15, he brings back John the Baptist to the stand, just like he brought him last week. John the Baptist also testifies that Jesus comes before him. He testifies that Jesus is more important than he is because he has always existed. He is God who has come down and has become man. And we say, we have waited for this. It was just as we wrap up this first point. Let's think a little bit more about the significance of this. Why is this so important? Why have we waited for God to become man? What difference does it make that God has dwelt among us? What difference does it make? My, my, uh, one of my good friends, Matt McAlvey, he's a pastor. He's the pastor of Parkside Westside in, in Lakewood. Uh, we try to pray for that church regularly. It's one of the churches that come up on our lists often. Uh, you might remember a few weeks back, uh, I shared that one of Parkside Westside's elders uh, died this summer. Uh, his name is John, and John died after a three-year bout with leukemia. Uh, John is only in his mid to late 30s. Um, and he leaves behind his wife, Mandy, and four children, all who are under the age of eight. So to say it's been a hard summer for that church is an understatement. And so uh, Matt got to spend a lot of time with John and Mandy. Uh, in John's uh, final days, uh, just fought that disease the last week of his life in the hospital. And I don't know, we try to put ourselves in Matt's shoes and just wonder what what do you say in those moments? You know, if Jesus' incarnation teaches us anything, it's that presence alone, being in the flesh, can bring comfort. But in a situation like that, when you actually open your mouth, what do you do? I, I think we should be humble and, and not expect any one statement to solve everything. But for a family in their situation, you know, they can... They can grip the incarnation as winds and waves beat against them. In fact, Kate and I, I remember we took a, like a, we rode on an old ship when we were up in Michigan. And when we were out on the water, uh, they said, you know, touch anything that's wood. Don't touch rope. Touch anything that's wood and grab onto it. That was the guideline. So this is something that they, the incarnation, something that that family can grab onto and find stability. That the eternal God became human is a touch point that God has not forgotten us. That God has not abandoned us. That God has not given up on his plan to bring us rebellious sinners back to him. That the word genuinely took on flesh means that God is not distant. Means that God is not out of touch with our reality. That the word of God took on flesh means Jesus knows sickness. Jesus knows death. He entered it himself and will one day rid us from it completely. What difference does it make? This is what we should do with all of our theology. What difference does it make that God dwelt among us? Do you remember what Jesus' disciples argued about the most? you remember any, any knowledge of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? 
It wasn't about what town they should travel to next. It wasn't about how to interpret a certain part of the Bible. It wasn't about what type of fish tasted the best from the Sea of Galilee. You know what they argued about the most? Who was the best? That's what they argued about the most. Who was the best among them? They would scheme about trying to get the best position in Jesus' kingdom. And they kept on doing this. Even after Jesus corrected him, they kept on arguing about this. And you know one time they argued about this? It was after the Last Supper. I mean, the Last Supper, right? After Jesus told them his body would be broken for them, his blood spilt for them, after Jesus washes their feet, that's when they decided, you know, this would be a good time to bring up that subject again. Who is the greatest among us? We should argue about that again. Here's the point. If Jesus set aside his eternal glory for the sake of others, who are we to put ourselves first? If Jesus acted so selflessly, who are we to act selfishly? That's how the Apostle Paul applies the incarnation in Philippians 2. Verses right before the ones we read, it says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, Jesus is God in the flesh. This gives us hope in the storm. This gives us a check on our selfishness. But we transition from verses 14 and 15 to verses 16 and 17. So here we see that we've waited for better grace. We've waited for better grace. This is how, that's, how John transitions in this. So John says that he saw the same glory that God has in Jesus. Glory that is full of grace and truth. And John says that it's from Jesus being full of that glorious grace and truth that those who believe in Jesus are also filled with grace and truth. And so that those who believe in Jesus can also testify that Jesus is God in the flesh because we've received grace from him when we believed. So again, in verses 16 and 17, we see that we've waited for better grace, but now Jesus has come. Now, I think the key to understanding verses 16 and 17 is understanding uh, the little phrase, grace upon grace. Do you see that there? It could be kind of tricky. Now, I think one of the great aspects of the ESV translation is, is not the only faithful translation of God's word, uh, but it's, it includes a lot of footnotes. Uh, and footnotes, especially when a verse can be translated differently. And there's a footnote for this phrase also. Uh, you could say not just grace upon grace, you could also translate it as grace in place of grace. So these two different graces at the end of verse 16 they link to what John talks about in verse 17. The word that links uh, 16 and 17 together is that little word for at the beginning of 17. So what, uh, put this together. The law given through Moses was grace. Grace and truth given through Jesus was also grace. So John's not so much setting up a contrast as much as he's saying Something better has come. You know, just as God was gracious to give the law through Moses, an even better grace has come through Jesus Christ. 
So when John says the law here in verse 16, he refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah. He's saying that God gave grace in the Torah. We don't often think about that. God graciously revealed his character. God graciously revealed his righteous requirements. God graciously gave the law to show how he, the holy God, could dwell among Israel, a sinful people. So if the law was one way God revealed himself in grace and truth, then what John is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate way God has revealed himself in grace and truth. Even Moses recognized that something better was coming. Even Moses recognized that someone greater than him would come after him. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Moses is ultimately talking about Jesus there. God gave grace even in the law. And that grace, surprisingly, is to show our need for Christ. That is a grace God gives in the law. Later in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, especially chapter 3, Paul will explain how God graciously gave us the law to expose our need for Christ. It works like this. When God tells us what his standards are, it exposes that we really like our own standards instead. That's how it works. See, Jesus didn't have to take on flesh. He did so out of grace. And when Jesus became human, he had done what no human has has ever done. He fulfilled God's righteous requirements in the law. He kept God's standards. So rubber hits the road. Here's what this means at the street level. When you hear somebody say, or maybe you've said it yourself, nobody's perfect. Well, It's not entirely true. Somebody is perfect. His name is Jesus. And there is no greater display of God's grace and truth than Jesus. You see, in Jesus, God can be true to himself. If God was all love and grace and no truth and justice, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. God could have just tossed out the rule book. He could have swept our sin under the rug. He could have told us, eh, I think you guys are okay. But that's not how it works. In Jesus, God was true to his standards. In Jesus, God is true to his justice and punishing violations of those standards. And at the same time, we could say this, if God is all truth and justice and no love and grace, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. See, if God wasn't gracious, he could have told us, hey, guys, why don't you pull yourselves together? Figure it out. It's not my problem. It's yours. That's not what happened. Jesus came to fulfill the standards of the law and bear the curse of the law in our place. That's why Romans 3, verse 26 says that God is both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. There is no greater display of grace and truth than in Christ. So let's go back to the iPhone example, if you'll entertain me for a minute. Does anybody here still use an iPhone 1? Anybody, is anybody brave enough to admit it, if you, if you do? 
No, I mean, the iPhone 1 was an amazing feat at the time, but what are they at now? iPhone 13? Is, that, is it 13? Okay. In many ways, the first generation iPhone is obsolete. So what good is it? Did we just put it in a drawer? Well, you can, but I think the iPhone 1 makes us appreciate the iPhone 13. You appreciate the new if you know what's come before it. You appreciate the new if you know what's led up to it. So if you know, for instance, the long history of cellular communication, the long history of the telephone, man, you will be even more amazed at the iPhone 13. You can then see clearly the foundation for this phone that replaces all phones. We could say the same thing for Jesus. We, when we know the grace that's come before Jesus, we appreciate the ultimate grace that's come in Jesus. So my question for you, have you received the better grace in Jesus? Or are you still running on the old model? Are you still running on the old grace of the law? Here are ways you might know. You see, running on the old grace, running on the law, can lead to pride. You see, because one way we twist the law is when we convince ourselves that we're good at it. How does that work? You know how it works. You've played the game before. I've played it too. It works when we compare ourselves to other people. What did the Pharisee say when he saw the tax collector in the temple? Basically said, God, thank God I'm not like that guy. And there's a polite way of doing this, isn't there? Not like a, a snobby way. There's a, even a polite way of, of pride. I mean, we just think we are a bunch of polite, self-righteous, law-abiding people. Uh, an example, maybe. Uh, We'll try to stay, say this delicately. Have you, seen, have you seen bumper stickers or even like yard signs that say something like, uh, just be kind? Just be kind, like that will solve all the world's problems. Just be kind. There's, there's a really oversimplified in just that one word, just. Boy, you're making a huge complex subject. Really simple in that word, just. Now, I, I want to I be careful not to paint with too broad of a stroke, that, but we might not be thinking through this slogan of just be kind. A just be kind yard sign can communicate to your neighbors that the world would be just fine if everybody acted like you did. A just be kind sign can communicate to your neighbors, you know what, I get it, you don't. A just be kind sign may communicate that you won't seek to understand somebody who you think isn't kind. Just be kind sounds like a prideful form of law to me. But if you run on the new grace and not the law, you will know that you need grace as much as anybody else. You'll know that there are plenty of times that you're not kind. <laughs> So you say, I need grace as much as anybody else, so let's be gracious to one another. The better grace in Jesus makes us humble and gracious toward one another. Have you received it? 
Have you received the better grace in Jesus? Because running on the old model can lead to pride. And you know what else it can lead to? Running on the old, on the old model of grace, the law, can lead to anxiety, uncertainty, and depression. Just very simply, people, people articulate this better than I do, but if we run on this old model of the law, we always wonder if we measure up. And when we figure out that we don't measure up, anxiety and depression ensue. And you might have heard this from this week. There's been a hot-button issue that Facebook and Instagram, they know that they make body image issues worse for one in three girls. Like they, the, the executives themselves know that. They know from teens themselves that their products make depression and anxiety worse. It's just one example of a larger topic, but you see the solution is not from something about us. The solution is from someone outside of us. Jesus has satisfied the standards that truly matter. When we receive him, we receive assurance in him. Jesus has satisfied the standards that truly matter. When we receive him, we receive assurance in him. And that's one of the reasons why John wrote his letter, 1 John. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. You can have assurance that you are beloved by your maker have you received the better grace in christ you can have the assurance that you belong to god forever because not because of something that you did but because of something that jesus did in your place so jesus fulfills what we've been waiting for we just haven't realized it we've waited for god to dwell among us we've waited for better grace and lastly and quickly we've waited for we've waited to know god this is verse 18. It says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Now, John has just brought up Moses, right? Verse 17. I think he still has Moses in view here in verse 18. Now, remember what we read earlier from Exodus 33. Moses wasn't allowed to see God. Why? Well, God explains in Exodus 33, verse 20. No one can see me and live. But then we think about it, it seems like there are a lot of people in the Old Testament who do see God, and, and it works out. So what gives with this? Think about Isaiah 6, Isaiah's famous vision. Well, it was just that. It was a vision of God. And even then, Isaiah only saw the hem of the Lord's garment in the temple. And still, though, we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook. Even a diluted and diminished and partial view of God made Isaiah scream, Woe is me. I am a man of sinful lips. I am ruined. See, God is so bright in holiness that no darkness can be near him. So how can we see God? How can we know God and not be consumed not be consumed like those Nazis from Indiana Jones, right? So you see, prior to Jesus, people could only catch glimpses of God. But John stresses that with Jesus, God reveals himself in an unprecedented way. And John assures us that when we receive Jesus, we don't just know God in part, we know God in full. And this is possible because Jesus is God himself. 
Yet he is distinct from God, and yet still he is intimately close to God. He is at the Father's side. Another way to translate this is that he is at the bosom of the Father. I like how one commentator puts it. He says, the point of John 1.18 is that Jesus has unparalleled intimacy with the Father and is revealing him in an unprecedented way. Unparalleled intimacy with the Father, revealing him in an unprecedented way. So Jesus is the true and the ultimate way that God has made himself known. And that verb made known in verse 18 can be used to refer to writing a narrative or writing a story. So what John's saying is like, Jesus has given the full narrative of who the Father is. Maybe to put it a different way, again, rubber hits the road, street level. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. And this seems really obvious. But we don't get to decide what God is like. Seems really obvious, but we don't get to decide what God is like. We don't know God on our own. We know God through Jesus. We can't make God into whoever we want him to be. You know, we do this because we want to be in charge. We make our own rules, and when we follow them well, we tell God that, God, you're in my debt, and you owe, you owe, us to, you owe me to be good to me. We seek to control God because we don't want God to control us. We want God to serve us because we don't want to serve him. But my brothers and sisters, the true God is so much better than the one that we make up. The true God is so much better than just another form of ourselves. God knows he doesn't owe us anything. God knows he's not indebted to us. We're indebted to him. And yet when God made himself known in Christ, he didn't demand that we pay off that debt. He paid it for us. We're the ones who caused the damage, but God is the one who paid. We're the ones who strayed, but God is the one who pursued. Jesus did this so that we can have the same closeness to the father that he enjoys himself. So we'll close with this, a very familiar verse, probably the most familiar verse, John 3, 16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to reveal the Father and give us life. But what is eternal life? John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that you know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We might not realize it, but we have waited to know God. And we won't know him on our own. We know him only through Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for, for being so much better than what we would have designed on our own. We thank you for fulfilling the desires that we should have, not the ones that we do have. We thank you, God, for giving us what we need and not just giving us what we want. Oh, Lord, align our desires with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you dwelt among us. Give us this as an anchor in the storm, 
Give us this to humble us when we are selfish. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us better grace. That no longer we need to be prideful about our own law-keeping. That no longer we need to be devastated by our own lack of law-keeping. But that we can find ourselves in you, the one who fulfilled the law in our place and bore its curse on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that through you we can know the Father, the one who made us. So will we cling to you all our days, including the rest of this one? For your sake we pray. Amen. Brother Randall, once again, is going to come lead us uh, as we...